If you guys were psychic or what but the dynamite kid and tiger mask match at madison square garden the match before them was bob orton versus pat patterson <laughs> and uh the match after it was an intercontinental title match jake do you want to guess one of the other names that you guys mentioned that you don fucking don pulled? morocco uh no it's a pedro morales oh it's oh. fucking pedro morales. pedro morales okay all right and our favorite possible murderer oh Yay! Yeah. it's all full circle so yeah he was sandwiched exactly by what we thought he was i will say though if someone would have popped the crowd back then after that match right it'd be jimmy snooka right you know? yeah that's not that's not that's not too bad a booking but I, I just happen to know those particular players because i actually have pictures of that time period and I actually found some pictures of this particular tiger mask msg match <laughs> yeah. there's a nice picture it's of dynamite work yeah their match at Madison Square Garden was or officially listed on here only seven minutes long, and it blew brains out of heads, so you don't need much time to amaze people. Welcome to Tim Bell Pod, where we discuss pro wrestlers who dead. <laughs> Live from the man cave. <laughs> Jake is so upset right now. <laughs> you know, you ask me every week, like, hey... <laughs> Have you gotten any blowback from other wrestlers about some of the things that we do on Ten Bell Pod? Like, I like how you are going for the controversial angle, yeah. and like, like you think you're trying to slip it underneath the radar. Like, you th you obviously saw that I was messing around with the audio dials and think I wasn't yeah. going to pick up on that. <laughs> but no, I was clearly listening to every word that he you was, were saying. He was asking, did anybody get in a reaction? Oh, they didn't. Well, they fucking need to. He just doubles down every <laughs> single episode. You always double down on. Well, if you're baby. upset with that, I'm Michael Loving. Oh shit. <laughs> I, I am Nick Alexander, and I am but the go-home show to the pay-per-view extravaganza that is my two co-hosts. I'm still trying to figure out what you just said in my head. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm Michael Loving. Woody, woody, woo. And we are joined by everyone's professional wrestling tent-wrecking pal, the Man Scout Jake Manning. One and the only. We closed out last episode on Dynamite Wrestling Tiger Mask at MSG. He met the Vinces there. However, still a little bit more time before he would go full-blown with the WWF. Dynamite made trips down to Hawaii to wrestle for Peter Maivia, as well as Portland, where he'd work with Kurt Henning for the first time, as well as the always lovable Billy Jack Haynes. Dynamite was still working for New Japan, and he even won the WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship, winning a tournament. How did New Japan have a belt from WWF that was defended exclusively in New Japan? Really? WWF didn't care about it. Right? Right. It was just okay. like a working relationship, and I think they also had the MSG Tag League, okay. which I don't think some of those... I don't think none of those happened in MSG. I think they all happened in Japan. Like it was like this weird, they had this weird working relationship with New Japan. They they would exchange and bring people over. This is like 
you know, Vince Senior was still around, so he had a good relationship. Like you, you would see the NWA title defended on WWF shows. Oh. So, and then you'd have New Japan guys in, and like it was still this was before the whole takeover by Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Yeah. Dynamo was still working Japan. However, Sayama eventually retired. Things were just, like, never the same with Dynamite. He was also running into money problems. They tra- they kept trying to dick him over and short him on money. And that led to Giant Baba and All Japan coming to Dynamite Kid like a thief in the night. All Japan employee Hadashi had taken a trip to Calgary to visit Dynamite and Davy Boy. Hadashi opened up a briefcase that contained between fifteen dollars and $20,000. Mm. Dynamite saw the money and right away was like, yes, to whatever you're about to ask. That's a good movie scene. Dynamite and Davy Boy jumped ship to All Japan November of 84, which wasn't completely unheard of, but still was a huge deal. Oh, when... Stan Hansen made the jump from New Japan to All Japan. Oh, God. And <laughs> and he did it, like, in the, the real-world tag league finals. And he came out with <laughs> Snuka and Bruiser Brody, like, just the reaction of, like, oh! Like, it was, this like... shit's gonna get... Like, everybody knew, like, oh, gosh. The Yakuza, or Yakuza, <laughs> is going to be... His tonight. <laughs> the crowd reaction was, someone's gonna die. Yeah, like they knew the gravity of the situation. And, and some of the other jumps had already kind of happened like that. So it didn't quite have the same impact, but still tons of heat. And to add to the jump drama, Dynamite was still New Japan's junior heavyweight champion. Ugh. And this is why Vince screwed Brett, who screwed Brett. <laughs> Baba was going to pay them 20 grand each up front, plus 6200 a week. Jesus in today's Christ. money, that's a signing bonus and a week's of work valued at $60,000. Yeah. As far as the belt is concerned, Dynamite was super cool about it. He mailed it back to the New Japan offices. Uh, Even though it was a little shady, and I'm sure a lot of feelings were hurt, in the end, Dynamite said that everyone in New Japan seemed to not really have bad feelings. You know, it was just business. However, Stu Hart was pissed. Dynamite leaving not only cut Brett off from New Japan... Dynamite cost Stu thousands and thousands of dollars in booking fees he was earning by renting out Dynamite Kit to Inoki. Well, and that was one of the things they had. They had a working relationship. Like New Japan, they were extremely smart. Uh, like we mentioned in part one, Sayama was able to go to like the UK and learn their style. And yeah. they were able to send him to Mexico and learn that style. And if they wanted to send him to Calgary to kind of learn a more American style. So it was all part of this, like, young boy traveling aspect. And, like, some, they'd even send people to Germany to wrestle in some of the tournaments that would happen over there and get all these different styles. And then they would give him a gimmick in New Japan and they'd be Jushin Thunder Liger. <laughs> and that's basically how it went. And, and, you know, Tiger Mask was one of the first guys like that. And that's kind of what they were doing with a lot of their guys is they would go to America and they would do the evil foreigner thing there <laughs> in Japan and then they would go to the UK and kind of learn that style like I said go to Mexico and learn a lot of the rules yeah. and then they they would take melting all that experience yeah melting pot of skills and then benefit from all of that so basically fracturing that relationship with Calgary fractured part of New Japan's 
star making system they had built wow so it was like taking out a whole different aspect of what they had and then they'd you know they're very particular about building relationships over long periods of time and they, they want things done very particularly and once they're, they're set into something they want to continue that down the road but if something fractures that relationship it's it is a big deal and that's what i've kind of learned with working with japanese companies huh. i nick i don't want to shit on you but uh, if Stu Hart reacted to that news, Jake, how would that sound? Screw me. He's so angry. He threw me. Screw me. So how did Dynamite end up in WWF? So in 84, Vince's right-hand man, George Scott, attended a taping at the Pavilion in Calgary. That night, Dynamite wrestled Brett, and they obviously crushed it. After the match, both of them were invited to wrestle matches for WWF. August 29th of 84, Dynamite and Brett did a TV taping for Vince. They did a tag match against Iron Mike Sharp and Troy Alexander, and Dynamite also did a singles match against Nick DiCarlo. Dynamite was paid $25, which I hope was also in a giant briefcase. But again, that's like 60 Three bucks. <laughs> and, uh, money. Listen, Vince. Vince isn't paying you to be on TV. He's he's gonna pay you an opportunity. That's right. Yeah. Exposure, man. It's the best thing in wrestling and the stand-up comedy business. Uh, yeah, I put a lot of exposure in my gas tank. So Dynamite was pissed about the pay, and he swore he'd never work for Vince again. However, later they called him up and offered him that sweet-ass house show money which is significantly more, and of course Dynamite said yes. Well, let me take a little, little back up here on a, on a couple of things to talk about. With the match with Brett, in, in the documentary, Brett talked about this in great detail. Like, Brett even mentioned, like, his knee was kind of banged up when he wrestled Dynamite, and he wasn't in the the best condition whatsoever, yeah. so he had kind of a poor showing, but of course Dynamite knocked it out of the park, and Vince McMahon walked right past <laughs> Bret Hart Fuck you, Brett. as if he didn't exist, as if he was never going to do with anything with him ever. <laughs> he was never going to make him like a, a triple crown champion or grand slam champion whatsoever. He just walked past and went right to Dynamite and just told him how much he loved the match and how incredible he thought he was. Yeah. And that's something that, that obviously Brett is still bitter about today, yeah, but, even after the career he had with Vince McMahon. He to bring it up in the documentary, so it was clearly a big point. Also, too, something to be brought up is that in all Japan the Bulldogs during that run after they made that jump and and every all the matches they had there they were probably one of if not the best tag team in the entire world yeah they were tough like I mean and they were doing some of the most innovative stuff at the time like whatever innovation that Dynamite was doing as a singles competitor in like 81 they were doing just as much of that as, as a tag. Even if none of that would have happened, in 84, Vince paid straight cash money for Stampede Wrestling. And aside from Vince snatching up Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart, Vince took a meeting with Dynamite Kid and Davey Boy Smith. And when they walked out of said meeting, WWF had a new tag team, the British Bulldog. The one thing that was brought up that I heard, what did, I mean, I assume this was kind of a standard in a lot of territory buyouts was the owner or Stu was like you're gonna give jobs to brett you're gonna give jobs to dynamite you're gonna give jobs to anvil i mean and it's like okay if we buy this territory we gotta give them jobs i mean i assume that was kind of the deal i'm sure that was one of the conditions one of the clauses because yeah. i mean vince 
got this awful reputation that he was trying to shut everybody down. Yeah. But what the reality was, Vince went around to all these guys and all these promoters and was like, look, I'll buy you out. Yeah. What's it, what's it going to cost? Yeah. Tell me what it is. I, I want to buy it for TVs, whatever is, you know, leases or what do you got locked down on buildings? Like, what, what's the worth? I'll pay it whatever I think is fair. And if we can't come to terms on it, then so well, we'll you now have a new competitor. <laughs> we, we, you know, like, I mean, essentially. It would be nice to you, but if not. Nah. Th- th- there is that hanging over the head, but it's the situation of like someone like Stu who had been doing it for decades. Right. And knows that. As, the, as I mentioned before, um, Stu was about ready to close the territory before Dynamite came in. So there's all these times, and especially like the smaller promotions were always like on the verge of closing. Like obviously Crockett was on fire. Memphis had its stronghold. Mid-South was doing good business. But like a lot of these smaller territories, like your, your Portland's and were on the verge of closing all the time. So when Vince McMahon comes in and it's like, I have a boatload of money if you want to get out. Yeah. And a lot of people, there were some people that took him up on that offer. I think Houston was one of those people like, okay, let's work together. We'll make out a financial agreement and we'll move forward. And Stu was just one of those guys that's like, hey, I'll take the deal. But can you you give the the, the, the rhino and my boy and the the dogs a shot? They're good. They're a good, strong guy to take care of them. You know, so I'm sure that was a condition. He's going to get all this money and then close it down. And then, of course, about. Eight months later, Bruce realized he got left out of the deal and he, go, and he talked his dad into running Stampede again and Stampede came back <laughs> in about a year. So We didn't need those guys. Fuck them. But Vince had already kind of taken over yeah. and got what he needed to get out of it and took over that area. And he's, you know, but the fact that Stu was one of the first guys to be like, yeah, I'll, I'll sell to you. That's probably always why. Vince had a soft spot for Stu and always took yeah. time for him because all these other guys, like, you know, Bill Watts, like, you're going to give me money for my territory? Fuck off, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. you're going to, I'm going to put you out of fucking business, you fucking dying. Yankee. You're dying. Yeah. And then I'm going to say the most racist shit ever on a <laughs> newsletter. <laughs> and then I'm going to be out of a fucking job. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, Dynamite didn't actually sign with WWF at this time. We mentioned this in our Andre the Giant episode that when Vince bought up all the territories, he signed his wrestlers to exclusive WWF contracts, and that meant no more Japan, so Dynamite didn't sign. And much like Andre, the Bulldogs worked Japan while doing work for WWF. And that's what Davey and Dynamite would spend the rest of 84 and 85 doing. They'd face people like Masawa as Tiger Mask, Kenta Kobashi, Stan Hansen. They'd dip back over to the States with their sidekick Matilda wrestling in the USA. But by early 86, Dynamite and Davey would actually have to quit All Japan because the Bulldogs were getting groomed for a a WWF tag team title run. Well, that's one of the things like you... You want them on a contract because you want to do something with them. So you can only give them so much. So obviously their their money's not as great as it could be because they're not investing as much time in them because I know they're just going to leave for all Japan. And, and they're killing in all Japan. Yeah, and they, and they, totally. they made this jump where they could have faced physical harm because it was a shit ton of money. (laughs) So obviously it's like, all right, well, we already threatened our lives for this money. I don't want to just say, nah, we're going to go with this guy in New York, you know? So they're going to run that train as far as they could. But then also to that is the danger. There's a lot of 
AWA guys coming in all Japan. There's a lot of NWA guys yeah. coming in. So there's this whole thing of like, ooh, we could possibly lose them. So obviously Vince isn't going to be like, well, we're going to do a bunch of stuff with you. So like they're kind of in purgatory. So, you know, they're kind of feeling their options out and keeping one foot you know, out the door in case they need to and yeah, kind of I seeing mean, how everything smart goes. Way to play it, right? Yeah. And, and they were, like I said, one of the best tag teams in the world. So, so they, they could. <laughs> yeah. They should and could. At WrestleMania 2, April 7th, 1986, in Chicago, accompanied by Captain Lou Albano and for some reason, Ozzy Osbourne. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> British. The British Bulldogs yeah, would, would get a title shot facing the Dream Team, Greg Valentine and the Christian Leitner's NBA career of the WWF. Wow. Brutus Beefcake. So after Greg the Hammer collides heads with Dynamite, Davey pins him, and the British Bulldogs become WWF Tag Team Champions. British Bulldogs forever! The finish, I want to point out, that was something. Valentine gets pushed into the corner where Dynamite is standing up for a tag. He takes a bump, and Dynamite just splats so hard. It's just, it, it was one of those spots where it's like, this is what Dynamite did, and this is the bumps he took that probably contributed to the downfall of his life, but this is the shit that he put for the show. Because I, I watched it so many times, and it's just Dynamite getting hit, and he just falls from the top or the top turnbuckle or second, and he just smacks right on the on the floor, and it's just it, the sound is incredible. It's the recklessness. Yeah, that's yeah. what's amazing about him is you don't really know exactly where he's going to be at all moments of time, and it, it was something that was told to me very early in my wrestling career by Les Thatcher. He was like, you know, there's there's all these guys that can do all these flips. And everybody can do all these amazing athletic things and and everybody can see it in every highlight reel and you can just do a million spots and you're going to get a reaction. But if you can't do all that stuff, what do you really have? Yeah. And if you can do all that stuff, how do you differentiate yourself from the other guys that can do that? And he always broke it down. It's the element of surprise. Can you do that out of nowhere or when yep. they least expect it? It's so true. After winning the titles, they defend their belts against several rematches from the Dream Team. They do TV tapings and house show loops with teams like the Funks and Nikolai Volkov and Shiki. They'd also have matches with Brett and Jim, who are now the Hart Foundation. And those are said to be some of the greatest tag team matches in pro wrestling history. So the Bulldogs were pretty much killing it. They were appearing on commercials, they were getting action figures made of them, and they were on the motherfucking A-Team. <laughs> Season 4, Episode 7, episode called Body Slam. So everything was going great for Dynamite and Davey until December 13th, 1986, when the Bulldogs faced Bob Orton and Don Morocco at a house show in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So before the match, Volkov asked Dynamite to crack his back. It's like that thing where you cross your arms and you pick them up and then it cracks over. When Dynamite lifted up Nikolai, he felt something give in his back. And Dynamite just kind of shook it off and headed to the ring for his match. But while working, I believe with Morocco, Dynamite did a very standard rope running spot. A shoulder tackle, hit the ropes, jump over the diving opponent. But when Dynamite jumped, he had this stabbing pain in his back. Coincidentally, when Dynamite hit the ropes, Bob from the outside kicked him, so he 
fell down kind of selling it seemed like he was selling that you actually got it reversed it was Bob who was in the ring because Morocco was like he didn't even get to me I didn't even touch him Uh, because Bob Orton dropped down and he was waiting for Morocco to hit him in the back and he was going to nail Dynamite but like Dynamite was already collapsed on the ground and Orton's like what the fuck you do to him (laughs) well it's like if you uh, just type in Dynamite Kid injury on YouTube and it is that it's that's, it's so grainy that I couldn't tell like who was in the ring. And who yeah, yeah, yeah. When uh, he dumps over Orton, it's it's almost like he gingerly like you don't see an exact like snap in that moment. But when he goes against the ropes, you see Morocco throw up kind of the man on the outside hitting the opponent in the back with their knee. And you almost can't tell if Morocco actually hits him with the knee based on the angle. But the way Dynamite sells it, I mean, he just he immediately falls down. And I rewound it so many times, and I can't see Morocco actually hitting him with the knee. It's one of those things where he doesn't react to it, but it looks like it hits based on the angle. And then he doesn't get up, and he doesn't get up, and then he just kind of rolls back and forth. You're like, oh, shit, this is it. This is the spot. It's not a big, horrible, ah, or a big pop, snap, jump, and you see his body react. It's just this one little moment that changes his life forever. Everyone else in the match has no clue that Dynamite isn't just giving the most Oscar-winning selling job of all time. So they're just still like putting the boots to him. Eventually, he drags himself over to the corner using just his arms to tag Davey. After the match, they send down a stretcher. While Dynamite is being stretchered out, his legs are violently spasming. Ugh, fuck. They took him to the local hospital, but since Canada's healthcare system is the way it is, set up by Obama, they had no room for him. So they basically numbed Dynamite up and sent him back to Calgary. Vince actually had to buy an entire row of plane seats for him so that Dynamite could lay down because he physically could not set up. Well, and you gotta also think too, and this is something that gets glazed over, especially this whole Calgary crew of guys when wrestling for the WWF in the 80s. Luckily, this injury happened in Canada because if it would happen in the States, he had to fly inter- no, he had to fly internationally, have to go through customs oh, and go through that whole mess. Or at least he just had to get from a direct flight <laughs> right. to a direct flight. That's- See, that's something you got to think about with Bret Hart's career uh-huh. and definitely got to think about with the Bulldogs. When you talk about like running hard, they had to fly internationally hmm. to get back home. They had to go through customs every single time. So that, but that's what's funny is... <laughs> This probably explains why, and I mentioned last episode when we did the documentary, when we flew into Calgary, when we went went to go through customs, and they asked us why we were coming into Canada, and we're like, oh, we're filming a documentary. Like, oh, what's the subject? Oh, we're filming one uh, with Dynamite Kid. We're going to be interviewing some of the hearts. And the guy who was running customs was like, oh, Ross Hart is in my company theater group. Get on through, guys. That's Come amazing. on. Tell tell Ross I said hello. And all <laughs> like, that cocaine that was duct taped to your body went right on right through. through. So when his plane landed, there was an ambulance there waiting to take him to Holy Cross Hospital where they discovered he had two ruptured discs in his back. A few days later, Dynamite would have a six-hour surgery. So after years of crazy high spots, ignoring pain, no recovering, steroid, recklessness... It all came crashing down on Dynamite, and at 28 years old, doctors urged him never to wrestle again. 
This was especially bad news since Dynamite had just spent his entire savings on a house for his wife Michelle and his kids. Ugh. About a week later, Vince calls up Dynamite and he's like, I need those tag belts back. What if you come lose them? And Dynamite explains that he literally can't walk, but Vince persisted and Dynamite agreed. How fucking persuasive is Vince McMahon to get someone who physically can't move to professional wrestling? Just get two more legs, fella. Just get two more legs. Hey, Ray Charles, Vince McMahon here, pal. I need you to come drive me to the airport and then fly the plane. Vince wanted Dynamite and Davey to drop the belts to Volkoff and Iron Sheik, but Dynamite said he would only drop the belts to the Hart Foundation. I think you can look at this two ways. One, Dynamite being a diva and not wanting to drop the belts to Team XYZ, or Dynamite actually being a decent dude and trying to look out for some guys he came up with in Canada. I think it's 100% the latter. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think about this a lot, and I think about what Brett said this this always rings in my head every time when I'm about ready to be a dick to somebody. I always think about <laughs> Brett talking about Dynamite was just one of those guys that would open a door for a guy. Yeah. And, and almost like time forgets about Dynamite. But they, of course, remember Brett the Hammond Hart because Brett the Hammond Hart is telling you how great he is. But anyways, like... The idea that, you know, Dynamite would open the door for somebody who could end up being more successful than him. That, that's just who Dynamite's character was. And I often think about that and how I feel about my career. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be the guy that gets to walk through that door, but I might be the guy that holds that door for somebody. Yeah. So it just makes me think, like, well, maybe, maybe I should spend the time <laughs> being nice to this person. <laughs> or maybe instead of me getting this opportunity, what if I can help one of my students to get this opportunity like like should i i shouldn't be emailing like gabe sobolski like hey why don't you book me for a haul maybe i should be sending him youtube links of lucky ali like you should check this kid out yeah. this kid should be on your <laughs> roster because he's fantastic yeah. like opening a door for somebody else so either way on january 26 1987 six weeks after what should have been a career-ending injury and even less time after major back surgery the British Bulldogs wrestled the Hart Foundation on a WWF Superstars taping that would air on February 7th. Since Dynamite couldn't walk, Davey <laughs> had to more or less carry him to the ring. And once in the ring, they had their dog Matilda cause some commotion. And during it, Jimmy Hart knocks out Dynamite with his megaphone, putting Kid out of the match and covering for his inability to physically fucking move. Yeah, he just sell, he's just like, I'm, I'm good here. So Davey stood his ground for a while, but by the end, the Hart Foundation overwhelmed him, pinned him, and won the belts, giving the Hart Foundation a huge career-changing push. And I think the legend goes, when Dynamite got to the back, the whole locker room gave him a standing ovation. Wow. Like that, that that's how the legend goes. I've heard I've heard that on a couple of different interviews. Yeah, that basically went to the back that the whole everybody, even Vince himself, was applauding Dynamite for his courage just to get through all that dynamite took the next few weeks off the hill but as we mentioned before dynamite was broke and to paraphrase him after making 20 grand for one night of wrestling he couldn't exactly go get a normal job making 400 dollars a week so by march he was back in the ring gearing up for wrestlemania 3 so at wrestlemania 3 brett and jim nyhart would team up with 
heel ref Danny Davis, yeah. and they would face Tito Santana and the Bulldogs. And the main story of this match was Danny Davis getting what's coming to him since they had pinned the Bulldogs losing their titles on Danny, as well as Tito losing his Intercontinental belt to Macho Man. And the counts were really fast, too. If you watch the shit, it's just bam, bam, bam. It's like what it should have been at Starcade 97 until Nick Patrick fucked it all up. After Danny knocks Davey in the head with a megaphone, the hills win and the crowds boo. Uh, to add to Dynamite's brutal injury, 87 was also the year he had his first seizure. But by May of 87, he was pretty much back to wrestling full time. However, from this point forward, the Bulldogs would not be a top-tier team anymore. They worked the house show circuit and pretty much stayed out of the title scene. On top of that, Davey was starting to become a little more distant from Dynamite, which pissed him off. Dynamite had given Davey every chance he'd ever had in pro wrestling, and Davey only visited him once in the hospital, and it was for a photo shoot. So from Davey's perspective, I'm sure he saw Dynamite breaking down more and more and as a man who earned his living being in a tag team with him Davey had to have been thinking time to throw him through a barbershop window and go solo <laughs> at Wrestlemania 4 again they'd be in a six man tag match when Coco Beware would join them to take on the Islanders with Bobby Heenan wearing a protective dog trainer outfit I mean that's when I saw that I was like that's Heenan just being like that's all Heenan idea that's like yeah. I'm gonna put this on it's gonna I'm gonna be so over it's gonna be amazing so uh, Heenan gets the cheap pin and win before getting chased to the back by Matilda at 88 SummerSlam they'd face the fabulous Rougeau brothers mm. in a 20 minute time limit draw and it was the Rougeau brothers that would change Dynamite's life and career forever while we're on the subject, let's talk about Dynamite Kid ribs. Okay. Um, All right. The you know the big one is like you know Terry Taylor. He he would cut up Terry Taylor's dress pants. It's it's not like he terrorized poor Terry Taylor. But here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and th and this is this is said, and I somewhat agree with it, but I'll put at the end how I feel about ribs. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, if you listen to multiple interviews, rarely will you find anybody that has a nice thing to say about Terry Taylor. Yeah. Most people say he's a stooge or he's very cocky or very full of himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if you've listened to Bruce Pritchard's podcast yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. talk about not like, <laughs> you're not a fan, especially talking about this period of time where he came in and he balked at the Red Rooster thing and thought he was better than a lot of the other wrestlers the in there and then bullshit. he felt he was he felt he was like the next Ric Flair like oh when you sign me I'm basically Ric Flair uh, so he's getting dressed like with these really nice suits so someone like the Bulldogs who probably walked in with track suits were like who the fuck this guy think he is you know so he's trying to take him down a peg so there was a lot of that uh, another rib that always gets talked about with the Bulldogs is the way they terrorize Outback Jack but what most people don't talk about without back jack is the how outback jack came to be see outback jack was brought in by this guy who was like an agent from australia 
It's like I think like a movie agent or a celebrity agent. So real deal outback. Yeah, yeah, he was real. Yeah, he was real deal. Not like Paul Hogan. (laughs) But there was this guy, and he basically approached WWF like I had this guy. He's Australian. He's fantastic. He's a really great wrestler. And I'm like, sure, we we we've got all kinds of people. Can can, can he bring it? Come on with a crocodile. We get everybody got animals. So they brought him in. And, you know, he was hyped up as this good wrestler and he'd been wrestling in Australia and turns out he was dog shit. He was awful. This guy had sold sold the WWF like a bill of goods. Was, yeah. yeah, this guy was not good. Just, yeah. And nobody could have a, a, a match that was suitable with him. But they were... They had all this money invested in him. That's why you see the action figures yeah, like, oh, we're already... carnival barker saying, hey, this guy's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and they got sold a bill of goods. They're trying to get a return investment on this guy, but it, that wouldn't have been so bad if it wasn't for the fact that Outback Jack would fucking run his mouth. He would talk about how he's the biggest drinker. He's tougher than everybody. <laughs> right, right, right. And he would say, oh, I'm getting this big push. Like, and, and it's like... Dude, my dick's fourteen inches. Dude, yeah, dude, you don't even you didn't even know what a push was because you're not even a good enough wrestler and been wrestling long enough to even know what a push is. <laughs> and it was just he would just rub people the wrong way. And I I don't know if he actually said something to him or it was decided by him. But Mister Fuji, Notorious River, Notorious River, basically stood up and was like, "Oh no, this Outback Jack guy, he needs to go." <laughs> And Mr. Fuji, he would, he called the Bulldogs students. Cause like, you know, Dynamite being a, a notorious river, he, he looked, oh, yeah, he, he gravitated towards Mr. Fuji. <laughs> Teach me your ways. Yeah. Cause like, uh, it, much like with John Foley, like almost like Fuji was like his WWF John Foley to him. Mm-hmm. So he would, he would pull the, the, the Bulldogs over like, ah, students come here. And he'd get the Bulldogs around, and they would just, like, do Fuji's bidding. And, and Fuji would just be like, Outback Jack, he needs to go. And so they would just, like... And they'd bow, and they'd... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they, they would, and so they would, like, put something in Outback Jack's beer, because Outback Jack was talking about how he can drink so much. Like, oh, you can drink so much? Well, here, have this beer. They and then big on X-Lax, right? Oh, uh, this... No, these or are what, different. These what? are, like, these are, like fucking loopy pills or whatever yeah. like somas or whatever yeah. got it they yeah, just like, kept damn man and just like whatever it was but it was they kept putting it into his beer and he got so out of it that he made an ass of himself in this hotel bar and then in the hotel yeah. and then they like shaved his head they shit in his fucking hat like they they cut up his fucking <laughs> gear they just fucking terrorized him all night all because fuji said no 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 enough of this guy and the bulldogs are basically doing the bidding of, of Mr. Fuji, which everybody puts everything on, oh, the Bulldogs terrorize him, when really it was Fuji who called out that hit. So Fuji is the CIA, and the Bulldogs are Lee Harvey Oswald. Yes, <laughs> okay. pretty much. And Bulldog was obviously Lee Harvey Oswald, and Davey was the shooter in the grassy knoll. <laughs> so if it, to, to, to be a little bit more exact with you. And steroids were Jack Ruby. No, they were the magic bullet. <laughs> but, you know, that, that, that's definitely one of the more famous ones. Of course, there you uh, everybody else, like Harley Race talks about, like, Dynamite taking a wet towel and putting in your boot and slick talks yeah, that about that was one it. where I was, I, was, I was waiting for the rib to go further, and I was like, okay. I mean, I would be pissed in that shitty, but I was like, oh. But, but that's the thing. Like, he gets this idea of being a hardcore ribber, but, like, 
the people he hardcore ribbed, like Outback Jack, Shitbag, Terry Taylor, reputation speaks for itself. What was the dude with the ladder fluid? Because that could have, like, murdered someone. I, I don't know about that one, but... The, did you know about this one, Nick? It was, uh... So, he apparently he would smoke on the toilet. Yeah, dude knew he smoked a lot. I think it was, like, a Canadian wrestler or promoter. So, he'd smoke on the toilet and, you know, drop it down in there. Mm-hmm. So, Dynamite filled the fucking toilet with lighter fluid. <laughs> so that when he put it in there, it just went... Poof. It's like he's seen one too many comedy movies where, like, Daffy Duck walks out and it's like fucking black hair is like. That's the thing. So, like, some of these people that get these hardcore ribs are kind of people that deserve it. But here, here's what I always say to guys because guys come up and like, oh, ribs are good, brother. Like, you get these these fucking goddamn fucking good brothers today with their fuck like i want to wear a fanny pack like i want to wear a fanny pack so bad because they're so functional Uh, no because i I, yeah i i I, it's extremely functional but there's all these goddamn fucking guys (laughs) who romanticize about being good brothers these guys gimmicks that are their good brothers like i used to wrestle for wcw like they have these whole fucking characters that they actually play and they actually play them in fucking real life and they wear fanny packs is like uh, and they do the gimmick and they the whole time yeah outside yeah Lewis and fucking pro wrestling yeah exactly (laughs) yeah it's exactly like Daniel Day Lewis and it's just like like, this is fucking stupid (laughs) and I want to wear a fanny pack because I can't because I'd be lumped in with you fucking assholes (laughs) or give you a fucking reason to come over and talk to me like we're on the same fucking level when you're a fucking parody of a fucking parody of something that's fucking ridiculous and I see them rib people and they're the same type of assholes like oh it's a new guy let's just give him a chop right. like those fucking assholes the fuck them and when I see them rib somebody I always make a point to go make a beeline over to them when nobody else is around because I don't I don't want to embarrass them in public even though they don't have a problem embarrassing yeah, people yeah, in public considerate when you shouldn't be and I usually walk up to them and I'm like you know yeah I know you like ribs and they're usually like, yeah, brother, ribs are good for the for the long trips. You know how it is, even though they're a fucking 40-miler. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, well, why don't you keep this in mind? All the really good ribbers are in a wheelchair or dead. <laughs> Think about that. Karma uh, gets you. Keep that in mind. As I always tell people when they're like, oh, I'm just giving you a hard time. And I'm like, F- this whole fucking day's been a hard time. I drove 12 hours to be here today. I have to fight with the promoter to get any type of a spot that's worthy of being on the fucking show. Also, too, he tried to fucking drop my rate down by 25 bucks. I had to fight just to get an extra $25 just to get my full rate. I had to fight to get a merch spot. Also, too, I'm coming with High Spots merch. So if I don't make enough fucking money, I'm going to fucking not only feel bad bad about it that night i'm gonna get yelled at on fucking monday as my regular fucking job also too in between that time i'm driving 12 hours back through the fucking night so that way i can edit the show that i was just on where i wrestled the high school fucking wrestling coach (laughs) and put him fucking over and he fucking big league me and tried to fucking rib me and he had a fucking fanny pack on so if you're gonna be like i'm just giving you a hard time bro fucking this whole goddamn situation is fucking hard enough just being an asshole don't there's no reason for you to be a hard time because all of this (laughs) all of this just to get here today is hard enough and and i that's why i hang around people that appreciate that and try to make every situation as easy as possible that's why i like 
the Northeast Wrestling in our locker room right now. Like I have people like JT Dunn, Brad Hollister, and and a lot of those other guys that are up there that that just like we're just trying to make things as easy as possible and put on the best quality show. We're just, yeah. just trying to kill it in the ring, stay out of everybody's way, and let's just, let's have a good fucking match. And there's none of that fucking bullshit. I got a good uh, Jake uh, T-shirt idea. I mean, if you need a new one, the front just says "fuck off." And the back says, my whole life is a rib. <laughs> I was thinking more of, uh, I hope you end up paralyzed or fucking dead. <laughs> I usually don't repeat like rib stories, like just even repeating the ones we repeated about Outback Jack. Like yeah. I made it very clear that it was fucking done because this guy was a shit bag. Yeah. And so I see it as shit bag justice. So I'll share that one. But. As far as like guys like ribbing fucking nice people, right. just because they're new, just because they're new, yeah. or just because like they, they think they're friends and they think that's what fucking friends do. Like you, and this thing. Here's another thing: you don't know what's going on in that guy's life. Yeah, you don't know if you just like like if I rib Sammy Callahan, Sammy and me go way back. We've been through so much together. We've been through a tremendous amount of stuff. I would I would do anything for that guy. Let's say I play a rib on because we're friends. What if that's the fucking week that him and Jessica break up? Yeah. And I did that to, I, I fucking played a joke on my friend. That's the last thing I need right now, man. That, that like had somebody who he loved very dearly. And then another fucking friend of him like betrays the friendship and, and just gets a laugh out of it. And, and laughs at him in front of his friends and, and the, when he's already feeling awful about himself. Like, I would never want to do that to a friend. I would never want to do that to somebody who I love and respect. So why the fuck do you think it's fucking cool? Well, to me, Dynamite's ribs escalated the way like a serial killer does. Because at first it was like, ah, I put shaving cream on his hand and I tickled his nose. Yeah, got him. And then it was like, me and Davey pissed in your diabetes medication. <laughs> You're going to die. Well, and, and, and it's always the thing with, with ribs. They escalate to a level that gets dangerous. Yeah. Um, there was Johnny Valent Valentine and I think it was Jay York. Piper used to talk about this this escalation all the time in reference to this, but like it got like really bad. Like Johnny Johnny Valiant Valentine had this unique ability that he could take a shit and it could turn into like a swirling ice cream, like soft serve ice cream. So he just held it in for however he, he had this ability to do this and he would do this into like Jay York's like wow. hat. Wow. And then Jay York I think it was he did something back and then it was maybe Johnny did this to him. I can't remember if Jay did this to Johnny or Johnny did this to York, but one of them had asthma and they replaced that. The thing in the asthma yeah, thing is like yeah. lighter, lighter fluid or some lighter. sort of like lighter fluid. some sort of like, I, I'm thinking lighter fluid cause we just talked about right, the other rib, right. but some sort of chemical thing, like something that would not prevent his asthma. Yeah. <laughs> but it like caused him to like, he came back from a match. He needed his asthma inhaler. He took it and it was like, some chemical and I was like, oh, and he almost almost died. Jesus. So yeah. I I think it like, I think it was Jay York who ended up had he was the one who had asthma because I think he was the one that walked into the locker room with a shotgun and fucking shot at Johnny Valentine's Halliburton. What? Yeah, like it, 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 that's what happens with ribs. They yeah. escalate to a fucking level, especially if you're fucking over somebody with their life or you catch them in a wrong point yeah, in yeah, fucking yeah. life. Like that's why you don't fucking do it. Don't fucking do it. That's the moral to take away from this. Probably don't attempt at murder someone because it's going to make you laugh for four seconds. 
And also, don't ever fuck with Jake Manning. <laughs> he might scold you on a podcast. <laughs> the rib that would ultimately backfire on Dynamite Kid, according to Dynamite's book. Now, there's a few versions of this story, yeah. but the Rougeos asked Mr. Perfect to watch their bags during their match. And Dynamite says Perfect, who was a prankster himself, cut up their clothes, the calling card of the British Bulldogs. So when the Rougeos came back, they immediately blamed Kid and Davey. Not only did they blame them, they shit-talked them. They said everything they were going to do to them when they finally got their hands on them. Now, this got back to Dynamite, which pissed him off. So Dynamite walked up to Jock, and I'm Rick James bitched him across the face. This led to a huge fight and Jock feeling embarrassed about losing said fight. Weeks later, Dynamite was at a taping, minding his own business, when out of nowhere, the fucking Mountie decks him in the mouth with a roll of quarters, which is the second time a British man would see George Washington's face before getting fucked up. <laughs> That's a clever good. joke, because like this, like, we, we just kind of glazed over this whole fucking story, but this, this story joke, is on like six different YouTube pages. 18 million stories. There's 18 million stories, but none of them have that quality of a joke in it. Like, I, <laughs> that, that, that deserves, that alone, like, and very smart on the economy words, like, trim this down just so we get to the joke. Yeah. I appreciate yeah, yeah. that <laughs> greatly from you. Dynamite still had enough wits about him to fall back against the wall. Yeah, the fact that he took, like, a sucker punch. He got cold cocked without expecting it, which always, just watching so much MMA, people get dropped on little shots only because they don't see it coming. But uh, Dynamite got fucking full-on slugged with, like, weeks and months of hate coming at him, <laughs> and he did not drop, which yeah, is a just a testament. He lost man. teeth, yeah. and he didn't go down. You see people in uh, UFC fights just get dropped with little jabs that they don't see coming, but Dynamite was a tough motherfucker, even if he fell back against the wall. If you get hit like that, you're dropping, and you're out, but not kid. Even after the initial blast to the face, the Rougeos kept welling on him, and it wasn't until Bat News Brown rushed in and cleared them out. He probably saved them from literally beating Dynamite Kit to death. Because it's not hard to punch someone enough. Especially, I mean, the Rougeos are huge, yeah, and it, Dynamite's Because Jay, oh, was it Jay, his brother? Ray. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you know, uh, or as talked about in uh, the documentary, and anytime Ray is brought up, he was a real deal. Jacques, yeah. not so much, but Ray was, uh, I mean, golden gloves type stuff, and just a tough dude that could hurt someone. So Dynamite had four teeth knocked out, and the inside of his mouth was torn to shreds. <sighs> he went to the hospital, he got stitches. When he got back, he had a meeting with Vince, who urged Dynamite to let him handle it, especially since the Rougeos knew people, and by people, he met Dino Bravo and the Mafia. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, it wasn't like so much that he knew Dino. He was using Dino to stooge off that, that he knew people. Like, it, like Jacques was saying, hey, I, I know so-and-so people, yep. and... Like you, you know who these people are, right, Dino? Yeah. And and I have Dynamite's home address, and these people will show up and visit Dynamite. I don't make it home one time, and Dino knew those people and was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, I don't want to fuck with those people." <laughs> yeah. And of course, Dino went and fucking told everybody. Yeah. Even yeah, though yeah. Dino promised he wouldn't tell anybody, and Jock knew that he 
Dino would be like that. I just love how it came full circle. I was like, oh shit, we missed a good Dino. (laughs) A lot of people said that after this incident, Dynamite was never the same person. He had lost his edge and his bravado. To quote Honky Tonk Man, the dragon had been slain. Which I just want to point out, knowing Honky Tonk and my opinions on him, Jake, who edited the documentary, I wanted to give the biggest round of applause to Jake making Honky Tonk Man not seem like a total piece of shit. (laughs) You made Honky Tonk endearing. Oh my god. I was the whole time every time he spoke I was like here comes the piece of shit thing here comes oh, the piece no, of shit no. thing he and I was, was like fuck I kind of like honky tonk but it's so weird I, uh, there's a shoot on YouTube where he's talking to Raven and he's like really hardcore and more just like buries the fuck out of him and shits all over him and I'm pretty sure that was before you interviewed him and I think he had a little change of heart no 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 he's just he's a performer he knew what he had to do. He knew it, it would be... How to get paid? Yeah, he knew it would be entertaining on this particular day right. to say what he said. What but you know, needed. Yeah, but on the documentary, oh, we're putting over Dynamite? Oh, I'll talk great about him. Uh, He'll just tell you whatever gets elicit the greatest reaction yeah, and whatever you need that. in the moment. And I'll tell you what, Honky, on the day that we filmed this, we picked him at the airport. We were going to record it the night before, but he's like, ah, I'm tired. I'll do it in the morning. And usually when guys do that... Like they usually don't deliver the next day or, or whatever. But like he also, he did get his flight delayed. So we were kind of tired too. So we allowed it. So we went out to eat at a diner with honky and just wonderful conversation. (laughs) And we're just like, why didn't, why didn't we, why didn't we, why why didn't we film this? Oh, he could have, we could have done it. And he's like, oh, we're not going to get any of this out of him the next day. But, of course, the next day, like, hey, you're going to be ready right at 930. Yeah, sure. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be a workout. We knocked on his door. You opened it right up. He had the shirt on. He goes, it's okay. Guitar and shit. No, no, he just had the shirt on. He goes, you're not going to catch me from waist up. I just kind of want to be in you know, sweatpants. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. And he sat down, gave us wonderful wonderful content and footage I, for the documentary I agree, but i do and he was absolutely wonderful and hit his mark and was absolutely on point with everything i don't totally forgive his stupid fucking rick rude conspiracy theories but you know baby steps towards maybe honky's all right yeah. greatest intercontinental champion of all time yeah but back to but back to what he said about dynamite and it was that sense of like you know people refer to him as a bully um but it's, it's almost that sense of like invincibility behind him like you know once once somebody gets punched in the mouth like that who you think's like oh, this yeah, tough yeah, guy yeah. and invincible yeah. and you know that kind of takes it away but like you know as honky said all he had to do is like oh i guess he fucking cut me yeah. you know because nobody would have faulted him either way frustrated maybe a little embarrassed with the rujo incident also upset about the lack of push in the tag team division, the brutal WWF schedule. Dynamite told Davey that they were leaving the WWF. He then called up Baba's agent and told him they were going back to all Japan. The Bulldogs wrestled their last WWF match at the 88 Survivor Series, which is the two-hour card we talked about in our Rick Rude episode, consisting of four matches. And the Bulldogs are part of the godforsaken 10-on-10, 42-minute match. And I know it's Dynamite Kid's last WWF match, but abandon hope, all ye who enter here. See, it's like, I want to see how bad it is. I love shit like this. Show, Tell me something is horrible or amazing. I want both both of them. No, it, it is not good. <laughs> and Fine. it has some amazing talent. It is, I mean, it's got 
amazing talent in it, but they can't fucking work because these some bitches around the fucking ring they can't run no spots. <laughs> and so you, and also too, you can't fucking see the shit because they're blocking the fucking hard camera. It's just like the coordination's off, or what's the? Since I haven't seen it, because it's like it's, it was like ten on ten, and you have ten guys. And quote each, Jake from Rick Rude, they fucking ran out of spots. <laughs> Yeah, like there's there's nothing left. It's like the, the they didn't do a bunch of pins at first to knock out like a shit ton of them, or oh, you can't do that because they, nobody can fucking see because there's a wall of fucking people <laughs> it's so as they're fucking wrestling, and then so they can't really run spots because they're gonna run into guys, and then when it does clear out, they already did all the shit like the suplexes and stuff. They vertical suplex each other a million goddamn times. Uh, body slam means fucking nothing now, <laughs> and like the end is nigh. So after the match, they gave Matilda back to Vince and had a pretty cordial goodbye. Vince probably assumed that they'd be back in a month, maybe a year. And Matilda was probably like, please keep those motherfuckers (laughs) away from me. I'm tired of shitting myself every five seconds. They they tried to get me drunk way too many times. (laughs) Oh, the... the I don't want to even bring up the fucking stories that they would do to that dog. Uh, It's going to bum me up. But they didn't want those fucking dogs. They didn't want the capes. Are Are we sure it's not a lassie situation? What's a Lassie situation? There was like seven Lassies. Oh, there was probably eight Matildas. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee the first, the, the second Matilda definitely killed herself. Oh. I, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way that any of those Matildas are like in a Ugh. a British bulldog no, I guess retirement. They were all home. aggressive in the same way and didn't like Bobby Heaton or Jimmy Hart. But yeah, you're probably right. Sadly, yeah. I'm gonna yeah. go cry now. And then also they they made them get these capes. There's yeah, these, yeah, these really yeah, big yeah, case with yeah, sequence yeah. that when we did the documentary, the yeah. daughter uh, had one of them and I picked him up and it was heavy as fuck. I think- and it was like originally hadn't been repaired because I had some of the sequins falling yeah. off of it. And it's like to give you an idea of its weight, if you've ever picked up a title belt before, yeah. it'd be like having three of those. You're, so you're a medieval knight going into battle. Yeah, because it <laughs> was that fucking armor. heavy. And then they wanted him to carry those around, and they're just like, "No, we don't fucking do that." And then like, you got to carry a dog. No, fuck that. We ain't fucking doing it. No animals. It's the eighties. Yeah. After leaving WWF, the Bulldogs spent the rest of '88 back in Calgary. By then, Stampede was back and running, but things weren't great in Stampede Wrestling. Even with the famous British Bulldogs returning, WWF had long since raided the territory of all their talent. They were trying to build around young guys like Owen and Brian Pillman and a 21-year-old Chris Benoit. I don't know. But business, not very good. To compound their problems, every time the Bulldogs had an angle that would pick up some steam, they'd leave and go work in all Japan. They were almost like too big for Stampede at this time. Like yeah. They'd already done wrestlemania they'd already conquered the world in japan and it just they were it was almost like odd to see them on there like i've seen tapes and it's just very weird like like man these guys are like because they like main evented like the whole time yeah they were like like superstars coming in like what are you doing here and then of course the more they hang around it's like it's weird and odd yeah and then also too like they were only using it for stuff to do when they weren't in japan yeah it's like they they weren't invested They'd work on into 89, bouncing between all Japan and Calgary. In 1990, Davy Boy Smith no-showed an all-Japan tag team tournament. Without telling Dynamite, Davy went back to the WWF. Ooh. 
He also called up All Japan, told them that Dynamite had been in a serious car accident, <laughs> yeah. and that's why the Bulldogs were canceling. Uh. Davey and Dynamite never spoke again. To add on to it, Davey had trademarked the term British Bulldogs. He returned to the WWF as the British Bulldog, leaving Dynamite Kid without his big WWF drawing name. So Johnny Smith would take Davey Boy's spot, and the new British Bruisers continued wrestling in all Japan after the tournament. Why was he Johnny Smith? Because he was Davey's brother. That's right. Because it was was just a work. Just like... Johnny Rich was uh, Tommy Rich's brother yeah. or cousin. I can't remember, but I, that <laughs> doesn't was, matter. Doesn't doesn't matter. All I know is he had a weird dick. So. <laughs> <laughs> On top of all that, Stampede closed down December of '89, leaving Dynamite working in just Japan till summer of '93. He take the rest of the year off, reemerging in All Star Wrestling in England the month of January in '94. Personally, things weren't much better for Kid. In 91, he divorced his first wife, Michelle, the sister of Bret Hart's then-wife, Julie. Dynamite had a son and two daughters with her, and the marriage wasn't good. I mean, you have the normal neglect between a traveling performer and his family, but piled on was Dynamite's roid rage, which led to physical abuse. In the documentary, Michelle said that things were so bad, she considered killing her kids and herself. It's the family annihilator stuff where your feeling is like, I don't want to exist and I don't want my kids to exist in a world without me because it'll be too hard on them. And and it's just like to be in that mind frame and to be there. Fuck, man, that's that's messed up. That's really it's just to think about someone else being there. It's 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 rough. And I think we're simplifying, simplifying it when we say it always just all steroids. Oh, yeah, totally, There's, totally, totally. You know, I think we, we can look back on the, the OJ and Nicole Brown issue and, and put, you know, put a little tail on that donkey of CTE. Totally. More so than anything. And obviously, for someone like Dynamite, all the bumps and all the, all the trauma there. And, you know, it's always like you get a concussion and then you get another concussion closely after. I mean, how many times did that probably happen to a guy that was like, oh, I blew up my ACL. I'm just going to keep wrestling. Yeah. And just everything that he did. And then, of course, when you you have brain trauma like that, it, it makes you very erratic in your, your decision making. And then let's throw steroids on top of that and m- uh, mix up your chemistry. Uh, also, too, let's throw in alcohol. Let's throw in some pills. And then let's introduce guns to the mix. Another another thing I saw a lot of was a lot of pictures of dynamite with guns. Yeah. Like just like family photos of him holding guns. Uh, like as this is uh, like a... Like, for, this is a thing. I yeah. Know. And then also, too, there's a lot of stories that he would you know hang out with some very rough people in the area of calgary and also to go back to you know like his body's breaking down and he's no longer wrestling for one of the largest companies in the world he's barely hanging on to a job he's crumbling man. yeah and, and 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 you know we think about we think of like pain pill addictions and what's the opioid crisis that's that's happening and it, it comes with people not having a purpose or a place and it comes from the depression and you mix that in with all of the stuff that is, i just previously mentioned with dynamite this this idea that he no longer has a place anymore and that kind of depression and him just being like a rudderless ship and, and almost like a runaway train just 
knocking down whoever's closest yeah. to him, which unfortunately is his family. And he did awful stuff. He did very awful things. I'm I'm sure he did. Yeah. Dynamite's divorce story goes that he flew back from a tour of all Japan, and when he got back, there was a one-way ticket waiting on him back to England. So he left the thirty grand he made in Japan on the table for his family and left Calgary for good 13 years after moving there. Back in Wigan, he eventually married a woman named Dot, and I believe they stayed together until his death, which leads to this next story. Dynamite, pretty bum. So he flew to hang out with his friend, old Waylon Mercy, or Dan Spivey. They were hanging out, doing some drugs, when Dynamite fucking died twice. Uh, the paramedics came. They hit him with the paddles. He woke oh, up in the hospital. Yeah, good uh, shit. The doctor said he had black scarring on his heart from all the steroids. What? what? In, in case you've <laughs> lost track of all of Dynamite's health problems, this wasn't some 50-year-old suffocating under the 30 years that he had in the business. At this point, Dynamite Kid was 32 years old. Jesus. So now off the juice, God. things would set up Dynamite Kid's heartbreaking last match a match he didn't want to do but he desperately needed the money like anytime i take a booking from bonkers so on october 10th 1996 at a michinoku pro event kid would be part of a match that was promoted as a legends of high flying max it was a six-man tag match with dynamite kid teaming up with dos caras and Kunaki Kobashi against the great Sasuke, Mil Mascaras, and the original Tiger Mask. Mm. I had never seen this match before. Uh. So after re-watching Dynamite Kid versus Tiger Mask and his WWF run where he's just jacked to the gills, when they showed him walking to the ring, it was like one of those uh-huh. things where like subconsciously I like covered my mouth. It was it was it was jarring. It I was, watched it and I just, I, you, you, you just think about your mortality. Yeah, really. <laughs> you just like, fuck. Remember when he was great and he was young and he was hopeful and he was amazing, and now he's this. And he, and then you, and then I remember watching. I was like, I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I kind of laughed, but it was like it was that serious. Like you watch someone's entire kind of life and what they loved, and on the the hard downslope sometimes you don't see most artists on the hard at the bottom downslope of it performing what they do and what they love but with dynamite you did and yeah just like the size of his arms and just like it it looked like just some old man cosplaying as dynamite kid it was fucking horrible well and also too before we get to this match he actually did some wrestling in england while he took the one-way ticket he did some wrestling initially there and it was very similar to this maybe not as, as sad as this Michinoku Pro match was but it was you know just as rough to watch and you know he you know built himself as the British Bulldog Dynamite Kid and then of course Davey who's over there having you know intercontinental title runs for WWF he's sending cease and desist letters to his friend who's on hard times which is just an even sadder thing that those two who are family and here's family trying to make ends meet on what little time they have left 
in an industry that they did together, and he's sending him cease and desist letters because he's using the British Bulldog name. The the cease and desist stuff is uh, it really hurts. I I like when Davey had to trade trademark Bulldog, and he kind of see saw where Kid was going. Maybe he like. I mean, don't, I mean, at a certain point, you got to be like, I got to look out for myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, get that. You got like, that. I, this is gonna go especially, badly if I don't speak up. Especially, like I said, as you know, as I said before, the people that Dynamite hurt, you know, when he was a runaway train, were the people around him because they were the closest to him taking swings at the fucking world, and Davy was just as close as his family because he was his family. And I, I don't mean to harp on it, but the, in the the match that Nick's talking about, the retirement match, the 10-10-96 match, I think it's Sasuke or I don't know. Some, somebody gives Dynamite a really fast DDT, and I, I watched it, and like every mu- muscle in my body tensed. Because like the way he fell and laid, it's like you, I thought he died. It was so fucking brutal, and it hurt so much to see. And it was just like, oh, fuck, that might have taken a year off his life. Yeah, uh, as bad as he looked, though, I mean, he got in there. He He's true. He, they even had this Dynamite Kid Tiger Mask showdown, and the crowd just fucking no-sold it. It was... It was, it was Dynamite Kid's team would get the win, but it is crushing to watch. The last image the wrestling world would get of arguably the greatest in-ring performer of all time would be a skinny, broken Dynamite Kid mostly standing on the ring apron, haunting the match like a ghost. So from here, Dynamite's body would implode. While at the airport, on returning home from this match the next day, Dynamite would have his second seizure and was sent to the hospital. Uh, later in 97, Dynamite's back and legs would start hurting him you know, more than they always did. And Billington even lost the use of his left leg altogether. He went to the doctor, and after running several tests, the high-flying, brilliantly agile Dynamite Kid was told he would never walk again. From there, he'd write his book, he'd do some interviews, but ultimately he'd become a recluse, refusing to have anything to do with the pro wrestling world. So there's not that much to talk about until 2007 when he'd be part of the CNN interview Grip inside pro wrestling. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's like they they there's a close up of red demon eyes, uh, dynamite kid, and it's just the most sensational fucking like hard copy bullshit. He would say infamous quotes about his wife. I don't think I was violent. I mean, I put a shotgun under her chin once. And that comment kind of took over his legacy to a certain extent. That was pretty big. Well, we clearly went over that, obviously, some abuse took place. That's already been said. That is, we, we covered that, and, and, and I'm bringing it up again, and I'm reiterating it again, that we, we, we discussed it. Something awful happened. We weren't there, but we, we know it did. And I remember when we interviewed Keith Hart, and he talked about it, he just saw, like, Dynamite's life ending with his family in a murder-suicide. He's like, that. that's what we thought. And we just assumed that's how it was going to turn out. Now, as far as what he said on the CNN thing, Brett brought up something that I would kind of believe a little bit. Now, obviously, 
something did happen, but did it happen exactly the way it was said in the CNN piece? Um, Brett doesn't seem to think so. Brett does believe that there was abuse going on in the household, but as far as that degree of violence, he felt that, that was dynamite being a performer in a sense like, oh, you, you want to hear a story? You want to hear a story about violence? I put a shotgun to my wife's head. How about that? Much like all us wrestlers do. Like, if you want to talk you want to talk to me about my weekend, I can tell you, like, oh, yeah, I traveled all the way to Connecticut this weekend, and I was at the building at noon. I was, I was there when the ring showed up, and I was there all day, and I set up, and I wrestled one of the later matches, and I was there till midnight, and I traveled all the way back. When well, the reality what happened was is I was flown up there. They got me there i slept on a nice comfortable couch in the building yeah i got flown up there and set up i only put out a few chairs and the the matches went long i wasn't mad i got to hang out with my friends and i got flown back but as a wrestler i spinned it to something much more violent than what it is so we can we can definitely take from it there were there was some abuse but to the level of what he said in there is a bit of theater and it, it, it is awful and horrible and terrible. And and like I said, for someone like Keith, who I think is probably the most level-headed of all the hearts to say that it was going to end up in a murder-suicide, and here they are bringing it up in CNN, you know, and making the correlation to Benoit, I think all that's fair. Like, we talk about how shitty that was. I think this was important for CNN to bring a lot of this out in the open because it was pieces like this that forced the WWE to take a hard look at the wrestling business as a whole. And it took a lot of us wrestlers to start taking a look at it as well, because for a long time, it was always romanticizing about, Oh, I'm a wrestler. I'm a rock star. Let's take some pills and get drunk and, you know, go hit on girls or mistreat women and do whatever I want. Cause I'm a rock star and beating my body up. Cause I don't care about my life, but it took, something like this and and exposing it to its level for us to realize that this is this is not fucking cool this is not fucking cool at all this is this is this is what fucking happens and like i said i think that his comments are a bit theater but there is most certainly most certainly truth i am not denying that whatsoever i'm not trying to put a positive spin on that whatsoever but i will say this into the defense of of dynamite and we, we talked about you know the one way ticket Everybody is baffled. Everybody that knew him, that he took the one-way ticket and actually flew back to the UK. If him being so out of control and so enraged and his mind and, and constant mood swings because of all the trauma, the fact that he was like, okay, I'll fly to the UK and go away was almost like his last ditch effort. The one good thing he did for his family is that he realized that he was out of control and he loved his family enough that he had to get away from them for their safety. And he knew that he was going down a path that if he continued to go down, he was going to hurt people that he loved. So he was like, I have to get away from you people to protect you people. And that's, and of all the interviews that we did and we brought this, this, this point up, that was kind of all of their same conclusion because they were all shocked they're like i can't believe as stubborn as he was that he took the ticket and just flew away from his family and there is speculation that he had tax issues that's something that gets brought up but i i don't think so 
I, I, I feel like I'm going to believe the Bretts and the Keiths because they all have their own different opinions about, about dynamite on a lot of issues, but there are certain things that they all agree upon in like this weird Venn diagram and his decision to leave his family for their safety is where a lot of people land. But there's also the point that where like your wife gives you a one way ticket and as stubborn as he is, he's like, Oh, fuck me. All right, fuck you. I'm done. Yeah, exactly. There there is that sense that it was almost like he All was right, pushed yeah, to that. Yeah. You know, but why didn't that escalate into a situation to where that's where everything I mean, yeah, ends? Yeah, I mean it's and, true, but it could have it was gonna go either way, I think. It yeah. was like holy shit, we're on the first page of the paper tomorrow morning, or he flies back to England and that's that's it. And yeah. I mean I I'm sure we've all had those maybe not uh relationships or whatever, but where someone says they don't want you in your life, fuck you, I'm done, and it's you're just like, All right, I have to cut you off, I'm done, I'm out of here. So it's just that stubborn, all right, well fuck you too. I mean you you, you can't make the argument that he was trying to do good, but I think there's that stubbornness in him that was just like, all right, well, I have a new avenue of life because. And but even also it. too, like uh, you know, I'll I'll even challenge it in the sense that he didn't go back. He could like he never he had the you know she oh, asked yeah, right, right. she yeah, asked she, she asked she, him to come back yeah, and, and, you're right, if he's right. like you know fuck you you when know calm down and everything yeah, yeah when yeah. it calmed down then then buy into the stubbornness of just like no you made your choice. Now he has the power, and it's like, no, fuck you. And then, and then that all goes back to it too. And, then, and yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I think uh, it may be a bit of wishful thinking. And it's it, all it, it is it is the last it is the last ditch effort of humanity that maybe yeah. he realized that he was fucked, and that's why he had to get away. But I, I it could very well be your exact point that it was just a matter of stubbornness, and it was pride that pushed him away. And that's why we don't have. Hey, sometimes two. pride <laughs> saves lives. Exactly, <laughs> and, and and I think that's the end result. I, I wanted to also make the point about the uh, the CNN shotgun stuff. He ta- he makes also the point that there was no shells in the shotgun. Like that's a big point. He also says it wasn't violent, and I think I think coming up like we talk about what he grew up in in wrestling in the eighties in the lifestyle and all that he did, like. It wasn't violent. He was like it. The, the way I watched it, interpreted. I've watched so much true crime bullshit and confessions and people talking about things they did and things they didn't do. And the way he talks about it, it's so nonchalant that it's like, oh, well, I didn't do anything violent, but I did put an unloaded shotgun to my wife's head. But it was it was just that way of him maybe not being totally connected to what is fear or what is violence that he just didn't understand that that's a fucked up thing to do to somebody. Yeah. That's the way I took it. I mean, for me, it felt like someone disconnected from what fear and violence really is and just being like, oh, yeah, well, compared to Benoit, I didn't murder suicide him, so what's the big deal? Yeah. I mean, if you look at Dynamite's life, like from the time he was a kid, he you know he got popped by his dad every once in a while, and yeah, you're a product of you, you jump into this world of basically shoot wrestling, getting beat up in training your whole life, and then you get into pro wrestling, and you're getting dropped in your head. There's the CTE, there's the drugs, there's the steroids, there's the harsh lifestyle, there's the insecurity of being a smaller guy in a giant's world. I mean, he was like a soup to become the next Hitler. And we're lucky he fucked off, you know, went back to England because well, this could have been way worse. It's it's almost like a perfect storm that didn't hit land. Yeah. 
surprisingly it really is, it, it really is. And, and you know and and we'll never know exactly why he left we all want to hope for the best that there was a, a tint of humanity there but it might as well just been a fucking last ditch fuck you yeah. you know but it that last ditch fuck you <laughs> it works out <laughs> it, it probably saved people's lives in the end of the day and that's what's so complicated about this whole story and so delicate about it that I don't know and it's tough considering everything that he's he's done with his career and what he means to professional wrestling but like also too this is what I this is the toughest thing that that coming to terms with this whole story because we in the documentary um, we kind of save it to his end so it's a little bit of a spoiler so if you haven't seen the documentary but brought it up but we talked to his daughter and, and that's what we we tried because there is this whole story like we this this thing came out like after the cnn thing so we had to do a documentary yeah, about yeah. a guy <laughs> that said these awful things and this is his reputation and this is now his legacy a mere years after it happened and we ended up talking to his daughter and i don't remember if we reached out or she reached out i think she reached out once we said we were going to we put the Kickstarter out there and it got pushed around and she reached out and she wanted to be a part of it, but it was very, it was kind of touch and go. We had to, we had, there was a lot of talk and when we set up for her interview and we weren't a hundred percent sure she was even going to show up and we left it very open to her and we knew we were going to talk about some very personal issues. So me being a, a, just a side note as a technical person, you might appreciate that. I was nervous as hell putting the lavalier <laughs> microphone on her and hoping I was hooking up right so we're going to get some audio because right. I know... We're not going to do this again. We're not doing this again. <laughs> They're not going to say, hey, honky, could you say that one more time? Just a little hey, bit cleaner. Can you about your dad again? Yeah, it, yeah it, it, this is going to be a, a one take and somebody's going to say something that they've never said before and they're going to say it in public and it's going to be on record for life. And her talking about her emotions, you know, her, how much she loved her dad as a child. And then her dad leaves and then she misses her dad. And then she gets old enough to realize all the things that her mother probably told her about how her dad really was and then being 18 and then realizing like and just being adult enough to process those emotions and then her becoming a, a parent herself and then thinking like how could anybody just leave a child and yeah, that makes her dig in even more but then at the same time too it makes her wish she was closer to a father and then there's all those complex emotions and the fact that she was big enough to go over and see her father and just 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 try just just reach out for somebody who may or may not be there or worth reaching for and i just i, I keep going back back to it and and that and i want to believe that that human aspect of him that he realized that he was trying to do the best thing for his family and i just i just think about the story of his daughter sitting in the living room with her dad and because he's in a wheelchair she had to pull up a, a kitchen kitchen chair next to him and she just kind of put her head on his shoulder and they just started crying because yeah. i think he he went i'm sorry and then they both just yeah 
lost it. Oh, well, that was a that was a yeah, that was good. And <laughs> and just and just the the you know the we live we live in a time when when people make mistakes, we we jump on them, we we ostracize them, and and it's good. It's good that that, that wrong people are being brought to light. And I feel that when people make a mistake, they should pay for it. Whatever it is, big or small, whatever you do that is wrong, the society deems that you should not act this way, you should face some sort of punishment. I don't think if you make an off-color joke, you should be drug out into the street and shot. That's not, what I'm, that's not what I'm calling for, but I'm saying that maybe you should lose some work or maybe you should lose some fans or whatever it is. There should be consequences. There should be penalties. You should deal with those things. But... Once you have been dealt a punishment and you ask forgiveness, there has to be some sort of redemption. Yeah. And or what's the point of ever changing or growing or you know repenting? You know, I've I've done so many awful things in my life, and because of those awful things, I have chose to live my life differently. And if those things came to light today. And they're like, oh, Jake Manning did this. I would be like, yeah, I'm sorry for those. I have gone about my life differently because of that particular mistake. And and hopefully my life since that time has has proven that. And, and that's what I, what I hope to do every day. And I think about the mistakes that I made and I think about that. And in this moment where Dynamite is sitting with his daughter and he tells her, I'm sorry. And being a man of few words and a guy that was so prideful, so prideful, in fact, that we we are we are discussing whether or not he just was like, fuck you, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back in so much pride for him in a moment where he's crying with his daughter to tell her I'm sorry. And knowing what that sorry means, like what when when would he have decades of sorry? Yeah, decades of sorry. And when would he have ever said I'm sorry for anything he's ever done when his whole life has been, fuck it. I'm just going to die anyways, or fuck it. I'm just, I don't give a shit or fuck you. I'll fucking do what I want a man to just say, I'm sorry and mean it so much. Is the redemption after that? You just hope there was a little light at the end for dynamite, you know, uh, and you know, that, that story about his daughter, him reconnecting with Brett and even uh, Davy's son, uh, and also, also too, like I met Dot, his wife. Yeah. Dot loves him so much. So there's got to be something there, right? That's... And he and he like proposed to her like in a McDonald's. He did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wrote, I wrote, I have that note right here. <laughs> and I and I think from what I, I I heard, if I remember correctly, he was in a wheelchair mere years after they were together. So she didn't get the best years right, right, right. of his life. She got the years where he was confined to a weird wheelchair she had to handle him at all of his worst. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and obviously his earning potential and everything else. But she still loved him, and the way she, the way she defended him, the way that she protected him, the times that she was there, she was there in the room when we did the, we did the interview with him to just watch over him and take care of him and how much she loved him means there's some sort of redeeming quality inside of him somewhere. And that's the thing too. His punishment is the fact that 
for a majority period of time. I don't know exactly when he was bound to a wheelchair. Are we talking like almost half his life is in a wheelchair? Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, he's suffered on this earth for... Well, the, the, like talking about uh, Benoit wheelchaired him to a WWF show in England when they went over there or something. And he said he was in a good mood, all this stuff, like telling stories and stuff. But I, I think it was Jericho or whoever like brought up the point that it was like he had to like shoot the shit with all these guys who you know could have been him still yeah. in this opportunity doing these matches or at least like teaching young kids or doing something and he's in a wheelchair being a special guest at a show and he has to sit there and think about i could still be doing this because like, it was like jericho he's 40 what 48 and he's still fucking doing main event and you know or like, or like an agent that was like one of the things yeah, yeah being an that, agent. that was one of the things that I, I found fascinating when we went over to see him one of the things that we did the night before when we met him we did the the signings we we gave him like a stack of dvds that were shoot interviews of all his friends because like here's what all your friends and they talk about your career and maybe reminisce and stuff like that because there's not a lot he can do but he definitely had a dvd player but we also like well maybe you'll want to see some wrestling and we just had the wrestle reunion super show that had davy richards versus harry smith on it and well maybe he want to see harry wrestle maybe there's a chance and it was like one of those uh ones that we set off for duplication so it was shrink wrapped and it was a nice little thing so we had like a stack of like you know, 50 DVDs that were in paper sleeves. And then we had this one shrink wrap DVD (laughs) and we handed it to him before we left that night. And we're like, here, take these as a gift, you know, thank you. And we'll see you tomorrow when we do the interview. When I showed up to do the interview and walked in, I noticed that stack of DVDs and I noticed the DVDs, the shoot interviews were like still in a pristine stack, (laughs) but the shrink wrap had been taken off the wrestling show. Nice. Like he still wanted to see wrestling. Watch a show, man. And he was talking about, and he was talking about the the Davy Richards match and the Harry match. He goes, "Oh, it was a good match." And Davy wasn't even discussed at that time. Right, right, right. It just like you know, he was just like, "Oh, it was a good match." It was like one of the, it was like one of the few things that he wanted. He wanted to see some wrestling. So if you would have wheeled him to a wrestling ring, he would watch it and and tell people what they did right or wrong. But the thing is, he didn't get that. He was confined to. A small apartment. It's not a slum, but it was it was meager accommodations. And he was wheelchair bound. He was in a completely different country from his family. I'm not 100 percent sure if he even saw his granddaughter. I I think there's a considerable amount of punishment that he's served, and he is sorry. And now we have to think about is there redemption? Well, let's fast forward to 2016. When there was a Japanese documentary where Sayama talks to Dynamite over a video calling uh, app. Yeah. And Dynamite at this point is, he's just a shell of a person. But Sayama puts on his tiger mask and tells Dynamite that he's strong and he pleads with him to keep fighting. And I did not cry. Uh. I did some curls. I ate some beef jerky. I did a motor in a car. Because I am a man, so you cried a lot. And have you seen the the Japanese documentary? I, I haven't seen it, it in but full, I but I saw it. that part and God, the <laughs> they actually licensed some of our footage. Oh, nice right. for that. Really, they, they they liked our documentary, but they wanted to redo it. And I think one of the things they wanted to redo is obviously uh, use their footage, of course, which is uh, uh, 
we're skirting uh, or curtailing a few laws by having it in the documentary, but it definitely helps it. But uh, also, too, they wanted to they wanted to do some extra interviews. And obviously having a moment like that was very important for sure. It's emotional. That leads to December 5th, 2018, on his birthday, Thomas Billington died. And we're a few months separated from this, but an official cause of death has never been released. Yeah, I, I just how many medical complications can yeah. add up till your body just quits? So that is our Dynamite Kid episode, part two. That was sad. Um, final stories and final thoughts on the legendary Dynamite Kid. Dynamite Kid changed the business more than anyone outside of like the Gold Dust Trio. Before Dynamite in Japan, there was cool flippy shit and strong style, and then there was Lucha Libre in Mexico. But anytime a Lucha guy or a guy from Japan would come to America, despite being amazing in the ring, they never really panned out here. And I think Dynamite was this missing link in the evolution of wrestling. He was able to take all these styles and be the bridge that made it work in the U.S. and Canada. And as far as mainstream wrestling goes, maybe it was because he was an English speaker, but he was the man who made all this work. I love exciting, high-flying, spot monkey crazy shit. And I know that means Jim Cornette's going to shank me in a parking lot with a sharpened tennis racket. But like we mentioned before, Kid is responsible for that style existing and for it being allowed to exist. As a person, I know he did some unforgivable things. But if you can separate, you know, Thomas Billington at his worst from the Dynamite Kid at his best, the good shit is so good. Um, I just want to open with uh, just two matches that I think everyone should check out. Go on YouTube and type in Kantaro Hashino, or just type in Dynamite Kid Shoot. There's a very weird match. It's a pro wrestling match, but it quickly turns into a shoot, and you know the exact moment it does, and there's weird, long 30, 40 second holds of guillotine chokes, and just like rapid fire punches and potatoes and it is a weird weird thing also uh watch the macho man and, and dynamite kid match in like 84 it's it's in the semifinals of a tournament i don't the it's finish, the wrestling classic but what what was it for uh for a rolls royce i think it's <laughs> just a car yeah all right because like it even it said the semifinals of the wrestling classic and i at home i screamed at the tv what the fuck is that yeah but uh it's one of the best examples of someone losing, but both men looking like a million dollars. Dynamite Kid gets Macho up, does a superplex, and it, like Jesse, I think it's Jesse and Gorilla. Jesse sells the living shit out of this superplex. He's like, I've never seen this before. And Dynamite hits the superplex on Macho. I mean, it's just like, you know, oceans and oceans and miles from the top to the mat and just slams down. And then Dynamite kind of awkwardly pulls his legs back like he's going to roll through and get out of it. And Macho turns into a small package and pins Dynamite Kid to move on. But the thing is, Dynamite it looks amazing because he hurts Macho so bad. And Macho sells it. He rolls out of the ring. He, he, he stumbles to the back. He has like three people helping him. He stumbles all the way to the back because the superplex just destroyed him. 
so Macho gets the win, but in the but Dynamite Kid in defeat looks like a destroyer, and he killed Macho Man. It's 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 great storytelling that you should definitely check out. Um, to point out, we're talking about Dynamite Kid and the horrible things that he did to people in the profession, but then when it comes to family, it's totally different. And I think that's that is so evident in so many people who are considered shitty. And I feel like there was a lot of good in Dynamite. He didn't show it to the people in his profession, some. But I think with family, it was totally different. And when he leaned over to his daughter and told her he was sorry, he meant the fuck out of it. To bring up uh, about his daughter, uh, I... uh, This is going to be tough. Um... I, I, as we mentioned before, like part one, like how emotionally wrapped up I was in the in the documentary, um, like it really, it really, it was really wrapped up in it. But Dynamite wasn't my father. Dynamite wasn't my husband. But that was something that was in the back of my mind that I'm making a documentary about somebody's legacy, and this person has children and and family and I and also too I, I I wanted dynamite to like it as well and um that was like one of my biggest fears was how the family was going to react to it and when I received a message from dot telling me that like dynamite actually like teared up towards the end of it like it was it's probably one of the I mean that's make it I mean it's it's probably the most emotional moving thing I've ever ever done and it, it, in professional wrestling I mean I've I've done all, I have had all kinds of matches I've met all types of different people I've told every, all different types of stories but as far as like I work at a, and it's one of those things that you know, having the ability that I work at a job where I have the ability to do that for, for, for people, um, it means a lot to me. And, and I just, his reaction and Dot's reaction to it. And then even Dynamite's daughter, I remember she reached out on Twitter to me and, and thanked me for, for making the documentary and, you know, Giving, giving, because like I said, if, if it, <laughs> that CNN piece was his his legacy, and no. I feel like anybody that sees the documentary, they don't maybe that becomes his legacy, and that's what I knew that I was up against. And and, and you know, I, I understand you if you would rather see that CNN piece as that being his legacy forever. I I completely understand you, and I, and I agree, but. I, I hope that you would see the documentary and then you would think differently of the man and maybe think about the idea of redemption, the idea of, of forgiveness and for people who were directly hurt by it, like his daughter to reach out to me and, and tell me, thank you for what I did for her father. Um, means means the world to me and i just i i, I hold that very close and I, and it, it just it's 
I'm, I'm very moved that she even even reached out to say that, and, and I'm very happy that she feels that way about her father. And and I just I don't know I, I'm 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 ran, I really am just rambling right now. It just it it's fine, it, dude. it's <laughs> it's tough because I, I the the people who I most wanted to please. It started off, I tried to please my boss. It started off, I had to please the Kickstarter backers. But then when we got close to all of this and this all coming together, the people who I wanted to please the most were probably Dot and 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 his daughter, who was courageous enough to tell her story and how she felt about her father. And the fact that I did right by them is worth anything i don't i don't know how much money or if we are how what the bottom line was for the whole documentary but the fact that they they were pleased with it i i view it as a success um and when dynamite passed um because me and bronwyn like we would communicate from time to time on twitter or i'd reach out like how are you doing or just very randomly very casually and when dynamite passed away i i sent her a message to just let her know that my condolences are with her um i know she's a little bit more active on instagram so i also sent her an instagram because i just wanted to let her know that i my condolences are, are with her and and her family and i never got a reply back but it's not her obligation to and, and my hope is that maybe, you know, she's listening to this now and knows that I, I do feel a great sadness that, you know, Dynamite's no longer with us. And, and that news came the same week that my grandmother passed away. And it was a very tough week for me already. And on, on top of hearing that, I was it was it was another blow I, I, I probably didn't need at the time because I, I was definitely moved by the passing of dynamite because he had a great effect on me uh, like i said before it, it led me down a dark path it, it brought me back to the light and it made me think about redemption and it made me think about my life and and it just it's it's a complicated it's a it's a it's a dark road but at the end of it there's some light and and that was the story that i hope to tell and like I said, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just rambling. And I don't know, <laughs> I, I don't know really what I'm going to say and what particular point. So, but, uh, but I did, I did save this one story that if I want the last thing that we talk about in this whole thing, I, I, I would like it to be this. And this is going to take a little bit of a, a visual cue from you guys. You can take an Instagram picture of this and, or, or we can post this on our Facebook, but uh, we're in the Manning cave. And in, in this office, if you guys look just up there, like at the top, there's uh, two pictures of Dynamite Kid, and they're autographed pictures. Now, if you guys look closely at the signatures, they look like shit. <laughs> and that was one of the things that was also disheartening about the whole trip, because we had to get a bunch of pieces signed. You know, we had all these 8x10s that we wanted to sign, and that was part of the deal, and um, there was a lot of them and I remember signing him. We we're trying to pass him through as fast as possible, but he's obviously having issues with his hands. And, and obviously uh, there were a lot of the autographs that look like that. And those were just two particular eight by tens that we decided were too bad to sell because he just, yeah, he, his hands were not as functional as they used to be. And, you know, signing autographs for a considerable amount of time was, was tough on a man that had, you know, limited control of his hands. And 
So I, I kept them. I'm like, well, I mean, if you're just going to get rid of these, I'll, I'll take them. Now, one of our deals with Dynamite, when we did the documentary, is that he had to autograph an X amount of DVD covers. And we were just going to mail him the covers and he had to sign them. And then also, too, he was going to do like a public signing, which had a screening of the documentary mm. in the UK. And we sold tickets for that. And so, obviously, there was concern that the DVD cover signatures were going to look as awful as those do. Right. Well, when Anthony, um, who was in charge of getting the signatures for the DVD covers, showed up, once the covers were done, the documentary was out, they would be released, and we you know, sent these covers over to Anthony and told him to go get these signed as, as quickly as possible and mail them to us. Well, when Anthony showed up to Tom's... Um, home there were these stacks of paper stacked up all over his kitchen table and anthony was like tom tom busy doing some reading and then anthony got closer and saw that these stacks of paper tom had practiced his signature every single day from the day that we did the signing with him he was embarrassed about his autograph and he had such pride in himself that he worked on it every single day knowing that he had to sign all these DVD covers so that way the his autograph would look perfect when he signed these DVD covers like he had that much pride in himself. He, the man couldn't walk. He couldn't do anything else. The only thing he could do was sit at a table and practice his autograph every single day until he had an opportunity to prove that he was better than the last time that he did this. He had too much pride in his own self to just... Like I said, he just... It, it was... It, it, hit him too much pride in who he was and that that to me is, is a story I think about Dynamite he couldn't, he, could, he, could, he couldn't do anything else other than just work on this every single day because he had pride in the people that cared about him and I just I don't know That's... so like after he practiced it so much how did it look it looked fucking incredible <laughs> 